Welcome to the Sunwater Institute's Performing Congress interview series. Today's interview is with Craig Volden and Alan Wiseman. Volden is a professor of public policy and politics at the University of Virginia, and Alan Wiseman is a professor of political science and law at Vanderbilt University. Together, they are co-directors at the Center for Effective Lawmaking, where they study the effectiveness of individual lawmakers in U.S. legislative institutions. And now to our host, Matthew Shervinak. Craig and Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, why don't we start off with, you know, some, some background on, uh, you know, what you're, where you're coming from and how you got to where you are today. And Craig, why don't we start with you? Sure. I uh, don't know how far you want to go back, but I can start kind of in high school. Uh, I was very interested in the uh, rigor of science and engineering. I decided to go off to Caltech to study aeronautical engineering. Uh, at that point, I uh, was uh, doing all the classic things in internship at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and so on. Uh, but on the side, they made us study a bunch of stuff, uh, including political science. Uh, and that's where I learned that political science could be treated like a science. We can develop hypotheses, we can test them, uh, and really drew me into that approach. Uh, caught my interest so much that uh, after a couple of years, I actually transferred up to Stanford to study political science there, uh, and then stayed on for my PhD, um, never looking back. Great. And since Stanford, what, where have you been, and uh, you know, what are the various you know, roles that you've had? Sure. Uh, so after Stanford, I uh, went off to teach uh, for a year at the University of Chicago, uh, four years at Claremont Graduate University, uh, then a couple of years at the University of Michigan, eight years at Ohio State, and now uh, about 10 years at the University of Virginia. So kind of a nomadic life after that, um, really always pursuing the, the, the link between uh, politics and public policy. Fantastic. And so, Alan, how about you? Uh, I have essentially absolutely no background in rocket science, nor aspirations to pursue it. Uh, similar to many other people who are interested in politics, I think I started off as a stereotypical pre-law geek. Uh, when I entered undergrad, I fully expected to go to law school. Um, and then in my sophomore year, actually, I engaged in a Washington, D.C. internship where I was interning for the state of Illinois office. And when I was out there, um, on the one hand, I completely caught Potomac fever. I fell in love with Washington, D.C. and the policymaking process. But at the same point, I also realized that I didn't really feel like I really knew much about the actual consequences of the policies that are being implemented. So I felt like I really need to learn a bit more about policy analysis and economics and the like. Um, I came back to University of Illinois, which is where I went for undergrad and finished up my bachelor's degrees there. And along those next year and a half, two years, I became apparent to me that pursuing a PhD could be really constructive in terms of helping me reach my goals in terms of really understanding the causes and consequences of policymaking in Washington, D.C. Um, so straight from University of Illinois, I went to Stanford Graduate School of Business, where I ended up actually in the same PhD program in political economics that Craig graduated from, even though we actually missed each other by about six months. Great. And so what have you done since, since uh, Stanford? 
Um, since Stanford, I my first academic position was at Ohio State, uh, which is actually where Craig and I overlapped on the faculty. Um, in between Stanford and Ohio State, I actually spent a year at the Federal Trade Commission, serving as an advisor to a Federal Trade Commissioner and working in the Bureau of Economics. Um, I was at Ohio State for eight years, with the exception of a short stint when I was at uh, the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern teaching MBAs. And then in 2010, uh, my family and I moved down to Nashville, Tennessee, and we've now been at Vanderbilt University for about 10 years. So what did you do at the Trade Commission? Just to, that's a little sure. bit different than uh, some of the others we've talked to. So can you elaborate on, on what you would have done in there? Yeah, so um, dating back to actually when I was in graduate school in 1999, I took off six months from graduate school to go out to the Federal Trade Commission. One of my faculty members at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, Jeremy Bulow, had taken over as the director of the Bureau of Economics. And he was interested in, you know, just bringing in some new blood to just both get engaged with projects and also provide some advanced graduate students with the opportunity to see the ways in which economic policy is engaged with or implemented by the government. Um, at the same point, actually dating back to my undergrad internship days, one of my mentors from my Illinois, state of Illinois internship program uh, was actually now the chief of staff to a federal trade commissioner. So between the two of them, um, I ended up working out a position where I was both working in the Bureau of Economics and learning about the economics of electronic commerce and the antitrust implications for electronic marketplaces on the internet. And at the same time, I was also serving as an ad hoc economic advisor to a commissioner on antitrust policy, consumer protection cases and the like. And then in 2001, 2002, I went back to spend a year there because this is right after President Bush was elected. And I thought it'd be really interesting from a political scientist perspective to get insights as to way in which the commission worked when it shifted from being under Democratic majority control to Republican majority control. So seeing that transition year was really fascinating. And then from there, I went on to Ohio State, as I said, and it being at the commission really informed a lot of my research interests in bureaucratic policy and regulation, which is another area that I pursue in addition to the research that Craig and I engage with in studying lawmaking effectiveness in Congress. Great. So why don't we talk, you know, broad strokes about what areas I mean, each of you is interested in? Obviously, we're we're talking together because you're you're both involved on the legislative effectiveness work. Uh, but Craig, why don't if you don't mind just talk broadly speaking about what are your research areas and then. You know, after that, um, hear from Alan, and then we'll dive deeper into the legislative stuff. Sure. Um, so always fascinated with that link between uh, politics and public policy. So, you know, what public policies are we able to achieve given that they have to be uh, passed through some political process? Um, and so that led me uh, to focus on a variety of American institutions. I've been interested in American federalism, uh, in uh, separation of powers institutions, and so on. So uh, within uh, American federalism, much of that politics to the policymaking process has focused on what we refer to as policy diffusion. Uh, if uh, one state or locality adopts a particular policy, will it spread elsewhere? Uh, if it's a good idea, are those more likely to spread, um, you know, and what are the pressures behind those sorts of policy changes? Um, at the national level, uh, I've been interested in kind of separation of powers uh, issues. Um, the president has some ideas. Do they make their way through Congress? Um, what's the role of the veto? Um, sort of likewise, uh, if uh, Congress is interested in getting something done but doesn't have the expertise, how much are they willing to delegate to the executive branch to make uh, those decisions within the bureaucracy? Uh, and now, of course, uh, in terms of policymaking, kind of who are those policymakers? Who are the, the lawmakers who actually get things done in Congress uh, has really motivated our current projects. 
So in terms of your background, you know, you mentioned you started off uh, more on the aerospace side. Uh, have you been able to leverage any of that training in any of this political area? I mean, obviously, there's a lot more, more rigor in terms of the quantitative methods compared to a lot of the history in political science and maybe using more models and mathematics. Has that come up in your research or is that something that is a former life that doesn't inform so much of what you're doing? Right. Uh, you know, the fact that I could marry those two uh, areas was really what drove me to being the type of political scientist that I am now. Um, so uh, unless there's some theory somewhere that helps us develop those hypotheses that we can test, uh, I'm not very satisfied with that. Um, and that theory can be somewhat loose. It has to be grounded in who are the actors and what are they trying to accomplish. Um, but in many cases, it's been uh, game theoretic models uh, undergirding what we've been up to there. Um, so uh, everything from kind of the spatial model of policymaking in Congress uh, to some learning-based models for uh, policy diffusion and, and how much you kind of go about all of the work that's necessary to set up a new policy and learn from it, or just uh, kind of free ride on the learning of others uh, in that policy diffusion process. Uh, and then the empirics side, uh, the data, we need to gather data that are appropriate to answer the questions that we're asking and to test those hypotheses. Uh, and that's uh, becoming more and more plentiful uh, as just we have better information and data collection uh, across the board in American politics. Great. And Alan, uh, maybe can you overview some of the research you've been working on over the years, not just the legislative side, but your broad interests? Sure. Um, actually, Craig and I have a lot of natural overlap, both in our methodological approach as well as the substance of our work. Uh, with respect to the overlap, methodologically speaking, a lot of it probably follows organically from the fact that we went to the same graduate program. So for good or for ill, we are subjected to the same core curriculum that is aimed to cultivate a certain skill set and a way to engage with both theoretical and empirical analyses to advance our inquiries. Um, I think in the broadest sense, my main interests in political science and public policy speak largely to the ways in which uh, policy is created in representative institutions and the ways in which different political institutions could be leveraged either as constraints or alternatively um, facilitating opportunities for people to achieve their goals, both within and, not, and beyond these institutions. So in thinking about it in those broad ways, I'm fascinated by the ways in which le legislative bodies operate and the ways in which individuals within legislative bodies can leverage the rules or perhaps create new rules to facilitate their goals. Um, moving beyond legislative politics, I'm also quite interested, especially in the American context, about the ways in which the bureaucracy, in the broadest sense, actually implements and creates the overwhelming majority of what we think of as law in the United States, which raises some very interesting and, I believe, truthfully, quite understudied questions about the ways in which the bureaucracy is delegated authority, the potential constraints that are placed on these agencies upon this authority being delegated, and really the extent to which either the legislative or in some cases the presidency itself can try to pull back or alternatively channel that bureaucratic authority once it's actually been let out of the box, so to speak. Um, so most of my research activities, probably over the last 10 to 15 years, have in fact been focused largely on legislative politics at the national level of Congress for the most part, but as well as thinking about the ways in which Congress and the presidency interact with the bureaucracy to facilitate policymaking. Great, well, let's move on to the, the, the congressional side of your work. Um, and obviously you, you guys have put together this great book on legislative effectiveness and, and, you've, um, and you've tried to quantify uh, in some way how you can uh, 
you know, identify the, the, the right um, lawmakers in Congress and whether they can get their bills through Congress uh, and, and giving them scores. Can you, would you mind just kind of introducing the project as a whole and then we can dive down into the details of it? Maybe either one of you uh, can take that start. Yeah, why don't I start with a bit of the details and Alan can fill in. Um, so uh, we've set up the Center for Effective Lawmaking uh, and that has a, a goal of uh, all kinds of research uh, on who the effective lawmakers are and you know why it matters that some people are more effective in Congress than others, what that means for power, what that means for public policy uh, creation. Um, and a lot of that work is based on uh, what we had done previously, the book that you mentioned, as well as the legislative effectiveness scores that undergird it. Um, so I'll go into the how we came up with our scores, and then maybe Alan can talk about some of the research findings out of them. Um, so our legislative effectiveness scores um, were based on a conversation that Alan and I had when we were both back at Ohio State, um, where we were interested in uh, knowing a little bit more about who these members of Congress were. Uh, at that point in time, uh, if people were talking either in the political science community or the media uh, about individual lawmakers, they were largely just characterizing them on one or two dimensions, one being, you know, are you a Democrat or Republican? Uh, and the second, just how liberal or conservative are members? And that was crucial because Congress was becoming more polarized and we, we knew that there were pretty major effects there. Um, but Alan and I were kind of looking at uh, individual bills and members and saying, you know, some of the most liberal members, some of the most conservative members, some moderates uh, are the ones who are actually always in the news and others are the ones who are always getting things done. Um, you know, how much could we imagine looking at who actually gets things done in Congress? Who are the effective lawmakers? Is there a way to characterize that uh, systematically as, you know, both of us are guided by theory and, and data? Uh, and so we worked uh, actually for a couple of years on thinking through that problem uh, and eventually came up with our legislative effectiveness scores. These scores combine 15 different uh, metrics based on the bills that members of Congress sponsor uh, and how far they move through the lawmaking process. So we look at you know, how many bills did a member sponsor? Uh, and you know, in our early days, we were looking at sponsorships, co-sponsorships, amendments, all kinds of things. Um, but we found that ultimately looking at them as the primary sponsor was tapping into the dimension we were looking at. And then we wanted to follow these bills throughout the lawmaking process uh, to the extent that there was uh, anything equivalent to our scores before. It had just been these hit rates of you know, what percent of your bills become law. And we found that really unsatisfying. You put forward one proposal and it becomes a law, suddenly you're the top performer, uh, whereas somebody who works on a lot of issues uh, and is pretty successful at many of them uh, might get a lower score. So we wanted to account for a portfolio size, how many bills do you sponsor? Uh, and not just did they become law, because uh, you can pick up a lot about who's effective and where they're effective uh, by tracing different stages of the lawmaking process. So we looked at five stages, just from bill introduction, to our second stage being action and committee. Uh, did the bills get hearings or markups or subcommittee votes? Uh, to action beyond committee as our third step. Did they reach the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate? To passing their home chamber as our fourth step and to becoming law as our fifth step. Uh, and we were giving people more and more credit for things that are more and more rare. So uh, lots of people introduce bills. There are thousands uh, in any two-year Congress. Um, Many fewer are getting action in committee, many fewer are passing their home chamber, many fewer are becoming law. 
And then, of course, we know that builds are different from one another. And so we had to find a way to characterize that. Um, we didn't want to have to go through scoring every bill. We didn't know exactly how to do that, nor objectively how to do that. Um, but we also didn't want to leave it that every bill was, was ranked the same. Uh, and so we came up with three broad categories. Uh, kind of the lowest one where people get very little credit is the commemoratives, your naming of post offices and so on. Um, Many bills are substantive. They're not just namings. They're not just minting coins. Uh, they're dealing with substantive issues and that's our middle category. But then we came up with our top category for the most important laws, what we call the substantive and significant bills. Uh, and those are the ones that are tackling the major issues of the day, getting lots of media attention. Uh, we characterize that objectively by, are they mentioned by uh, Congressional Quarterly, which is kind of an inside baseball uh, publication. And so that gives us these five stages of the lawmaking process and three levels of bill significance, uh, which we combine into a weighted metric a legislative effectiveness score uh, that we normalize to a value of one uh, in each Congress. So we can say one is, is kind of the average zero if you don't introduce anything and member scores range up to you know, in the twenties and so on uh, for the people who are really effective. Uh, and uh, we've been able to score every member of the house and every member of the Senate back to the early 1970s and up through today. Good, and then um, once, you know, once we had that data at our disposal, Obviously, the book, as you made reference to, a big part of it was trying to present the data and make sure it's clear that it had some degree of face validity, that it was essentially measuring what we thought it was measuring, and then present a series of questions regarding essentially what contributes to or detracts from the effective lawmaking of members of the U.S. House from 1973 to 2008. Um, we presented a variety of findings in the book regarding which types of members based on their own background or personal characteristics are more or less likely to be successful. And then based on those findings in that book, we set forth what we believe is the foundation for the research agenda that is going to take us for the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years in the Center for Effective Lawmaking, in which our research activities in the broadest sense, as well as our outreach activities, are organized around three broad themes that are part of what we refer to as the Building a Better Congress project. So one theme is what we refer to as identification. We're trying to understand what it is about individuals' backgrounds or their personalities, or the previous occupations in the broadest sense, things that they did prior to becoming members of Congress that might be correlated with their success once they get to Congress. Can we identify those traits? The second broad theme we refer to as cultivation, conditional on being elected. What strategies or skills or tactics could an individual cultivate to, or perhaps members of the majority or minority party help them cultivate to either contribute to or perhaps detract from their effective lawmaking in Congress? And the third broad theme that we're focused on studying is what we refer to as accountability. To what degree are members of the mass public or the electorate broadly considered interested in the entire concept of what we refer to as legislative effectiveness? If they're informed about the relative lawmaking effectiveness of their incumbent members, are they interested in that? Do they care? Do they base their voting decisions on that? Moving beyond the electorate, how about interest groups or more focused interests? Do they think about an individual's lawmaking effectiveness when they engage with them in Congress? Or alternatively, if people are relatively ineffective in certain policy areas, are they less likely, likely to attract support from external constituencies? So these are these broad themes, identification, cultivation, and accountability, really lay out the roadmap for a variety of research questions that we're engaging now or engaging with now, um, building on research for the last 10 years. So looking at some of the broad findings that are broad ways in which we've been engaging with these questions, 
you know, we like to think that we've come up with a pretty strong collection of empirical regularities that could help to provide guidance to both interested members of the public as well as members of Congress themselves about what strategies they could employ or alternatively what factors contribute to or perhaps detract from lawmaking effectiveness in Congress. So, for example, I mean, in the current political environment, there's arguments as to whether or not there's any virtue in engaging in bipartisanship. Um, and one of the points that emerges from a more recent study that Craig and I, as well as uh, Laurel Hartbridge-Young at the Northwestern University have demonstrated is that in both the House and the Senate, even within these incredibly contentious political times, it's still the case that those members of the House and Senate who engage in meaningful bipartisan actions as measured by their ability to generate co-sponsors or attract co-sponsors from members of the other party are notably more effective and more successful at advancing their bills than those who essentially go it alone or reach out primarily to members of their own party to help to try to facilitate their success. You know, if you think about a newly elected member of the House and Senate, one of the first things they need to do is actually hire a staff. We might wanna ask ourselves, well, do staff choices or staffing choices really influence or are they correlated with one's lawmaking effectiveness? And one of the points that Craig and I have found with our co-authors is that it's unambiguously the case that members of Congress, especially newly elected members of Congress, should be trying to seek out and acquire and hire those individuals who have some meaningful Hill experience, rather than perhaps hiring campaign loyalists or campaign staffers who have relatively limited Hill experience. We find among newly members, newly elected members of the House, those who are able to attract and hire reasonably experienced members of Hill staff are notably more effective than those similarly situated freshman members of the House who have very little staff experience. <clears throat> we could go down the list to think about broad questions about institutional reform. Um, one of the questions that Craig and I engaged in our earlier work was to try to assess the consequences of the term limits on committee chairs that were imposed in the 104th Congress under the Republicans back in 1995. And one of the points we we're able to demonstrate in a very robust manner was that those members of Congress who continued to serve in chair positions following the imposition of term chair or chair term limits were notably less effective than those, those who had served in Congress prior to, to term limits on chairs being implemented, which raises some very important and broad questions and, and guidance, we think, about the ways in which some of the institutional reforms that Congress has experimented with over the past 20 and 30 years has contributed to, or in this case, we'd argue, has attracted from the acquisition of expertise, internal knowledge, policy knowledge that can facilitate legislative success. And Craig, I'm sure you could point to others. Yeah, so just a, a couple of things that I'd point out in terms of what the center allows us to do. One is just uh, that we have this faculty affiliates program um, where we have uh, you know a dozen or more uh, faculty affiliated with us uh, from across the country. Uh, I think what we're up to 22 or something at, the, at this point, Alan. Um, and they're uh, able to engage with us on a variety of ideas and, and couple with one another in their co-authorship uh, activities. And so yeah, it really builds up this community of scholars who are interested in similar questions. That keeps us always thinking and always getting feedback from one another. And so that's been fantastic uh, in terms of the scholarly community. But then the second big thing is just engaging with the policy process, engaging with those lawmakers. So having the opportunity to talk to new uh, lawmakers about what they're struggling with or, or uh, you know, the 
members or staff of the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, you know, what sort of reforms are, are they interested in? Um, and by engaging on those fronts, you know, we can present our work, uh, but simultaneously we hear their questions of, oh, I'd love to know more on, on these issues, you know, uh, you know, how much would this reform help? Uh, you know, what should we think about staff benefits? Uh, what should we think about bipartisanship and so on? Uh, and that seeds new research ideas back and forth. And so uh, as much as we have the broad outlines of what we're currently working on uh, the number of new ideas that are coming to us by uh, engaged faculty around the country, as well as uh, members of Congress, their staff and others, uh, has just been tremendous. Um, we have more ideas than we have time to, to complete them by a long, long margin. Yeah, I think it's great that you, you've taken this kind of data-driven approach uh, and brought a kind of systematic view to it that a lot of others can leverage, right, and can see a methodology uh, to try to improve things with evidence uh, backing it up uh, rather than more of a, a straight historical view or a story-based view. Uh, the, the data can tell, tell you, for instance, whether the, the term limits had an impact or not, and you can actually quantify that. It's, it's much more powerful. And I, I think that's one of the great um, contributions of your work. You know, and I think another area that you didn't mention, but I'd like to ask about is the is the issue specific uh, findings that you had? Because obviously um, different issue areas may be harder or easier to get bills passed, right? And, uh, and specialization might lead to some people that are very effective in passing bills in one particular area, but obviously not in another. So I'd like to hear more about your findings related to that. You know, it's not just a matter of are they, is the lawmaker good at passing laws? It's are they good at getting laws passed in X field, right? And I think that's an important specialization, particularly as it relates to committees that is worth you know, understanding a little bit more in detail. Um, sure. Yeah. So I can start on that one as well. So um, a little bit in the book, but much more recently, we've been exploring uh, 20 different issue areas uh, on which members can be effective. And essentially, as far as our methodology, we're able to do just exactly the same things uh, as we did on our overall legislative effectiveness score. But now instead of looking at every bill, we'll look first at all of the bills dealing with health and come up with a health score, uh, all of the bills dealing with education and so on, uh, and come up with scores along those lines. We're going to make all of those scores widely available on our website, just like we do with all of our data. Um, you know, as you were uh, mentioning, Matthew, you know, having that data available uh, both to the public, you can just sort of click on our maps and find out who the effective lawmakers are. Uh, but also to the research community, as we have all of the data for download there, uh, is really helping build up this, this overall enterprise. Um, but on the issues uh, specific uh, scores, one thing that we did as an initial examination is just say, who are the members who are really general? So they're sponsoring, you know, one bill in each of the 20 different issue areas. Uh, they're just getting their, their, their feet wet a little uh, everywhere probably because they're having some constituents who care about these different issues or uh, they're being lobbied on these fronts um, versus those who are really specialists, those who uh, dive in and, you know, half of their uh, bills are in health or in, you know, uh, science and technology issues uh, or whatever uh, area. Um, and how effective are they uh, along those lines? Uh, and so uh, in a recent working paper, we kind of explored that and we found there's something of a nonlinear relationship there um, that uh, being a 
extreme generalist or an extreme policy specialist, neither of those is the most optimal. Uh, the most optimal is you uh, dedicate about half of your agenda to a single issue, but then you introduce in a few other areas uh, as well. Uh, and that presents some opportunities. You could be a, a specialist in transportation, but it's not time to deal with transportation issues. Suddenly you're pretty ineffective. Um, but uh, if you uh, diversify a little bit more, uh, that helps with your effectiveness. But then we tracked, okay, well, just how you know consolidated or specialized are our people's agendas? Uh, and we found that you know, 80 to 90 in the Senate recently, 95% of senators are less specialized than the optimum. Um, and so, you know, almost everybody, we won't say everybody in Congress, but almost everybody in Congress would benefit if they want to be effective lawmakers uh, from tailoring their agendas. Now, we understand there are pressures to, you know, cater to those interest groups or, you know, constituents or show that you're active in an area uh, and so on. Uh, but those pressures do push people uh, away from effective lawmaking, away from specialization and gaining that expertise. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, if we could talk a little bit about the first step in the chain, which is uh, introducing bills. So can you talk a little bit about the distribution of lawmakers in terms of how many bills they really introduce, how many are, you know, more of the commemorative versus the substantive versus the significant? And, um, you know, how does that really and you know whether they're freshmen versus they're in for 15 years, you know, did did any of your findings in kind of analyzing that first step, the bill introduction, kind of surprise you or or give some interesting patterns that are worth noting? No, that's a really good question, Matthew. Because I mean, once we actually have the data, we're just in a position to engage with just some really primary research to get a sense of really what does the world look like in Congress at a given point in time and has it changed across eras and the like. Um, Craig, correct me if I'm wrong in terms of actual raw percentages, but in any given Congress, at least given the way we code up the data, I believe it's the case that we have approximately 3% of the data is, of a, is what we denote as a commemorative bill and roughly about 3% of the data is what we denote as substantive and significant or the, the most important or salient pieces of legislation. Is that roughly correct in most Congress? Yeah, I, I mean, I say about 5% because it was certainly in the earlier years of our data, it was yeah. as high as 10% in, in many cases. Uh, so, so that substantive middle category is nine, 80 to 90%. And then, you know, the, the tops and bottoms are, are fewer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in general, I mean, some things happen exactly the way you probably expect they would be occurring. And by that, I mean, more senior members of the chamber introduce more legislation, the more junior members of the chamber, relatively speaking. Uh, members of the majority party tend to introduce more bills on average than members of the, majority, the, the minority, um, but not necessarily, not a stark difference in many Congresses. Um, when we dive into the data, one thing that did emerge in our analysis within our book, as well as some of our other published work, that was quite interesting to us was a notable gender difference that emerged with respect to members of the majority and minority party. And by that, I mean, uh, women in the minority party tend to introduce notably more legislation than their male counterparts in the minority party. Whereas when they're in the majority party, there are differences between men and women in terms of their introductions, but the difference isn't nearly as stark. Um, and as we dove into the data, and this served as the foundation for some further analysis that we engaged in that was published in a paper with uh, Dana Whitmer-Wolf back in 2013 in the American Journal of Political Science, in which we explored 
the relative lawmaking effectiveness of male versus female members of Congress. Um, what we found is that female members of Congress and the minority party are notably more successful at advancing their legislative agendas than men in the minority party. But in the majority party, the differences between men and women are, especially in the more recent eras, are relatively de minimis. Um, and what we found, interestingly enough, especially if we looked at the switch in power between majority to minority parties. So when a party is in the majority, that then goes to the minority in the next Congress and vice versa. We found that on average, it's quite common that men who were in the majority party who've switched to minority party, they start to engage in lawmaking in a very different way. They go from introducing a lot of legislation when they're in the majority party and trying to push their bills through the process to not engaging in the lawmaking process nearly as much when they're in the minority. They stop introducing bills. I mean, they'll still introduce, but not nearly as much. Actually, in the starkest examples, we can find cases in which some people who are quite prolific when they're in the majority party, as soon as they went to the minority, they stopped introducing almost any legislation. Um, in contrast to what we see in many cases among men in Congress, women in Congress, regardless of whether or not they're in the majority of the minority party, they consistently try to advance their legislative portfolios, even when they've moved into the minority party. They consistently try to advance these, introduce these bills and try to advance them through the committee system. Um, and these factors in tandem, that being women consistently trying to advance their legislation, regardless of whether or not their stat, their parties in the majority versus the minority, and men clearly engaging in differential tactics, depending on whether or not they're in the majority and minority party, contribute to this quite robust finding that, that we've observed in both the House as well as the Senate across eras, that minority party women are notably more effective lawmakers than minority party men. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and what about in terms of the, you know, your individual lawmaker, are they all pretty similar in that, you know, they typically a, a congressman will have a, you know, a number of these commemoratives, a number of the substantive and then a, one or two of the substantials, or is it, you know, a lot of, a lot of lawmakers are just putting a bunch of uh, commemoratives in and that's their focus and then others are focused on substantive is it, or is it quite, a normal distribution across all the different lawmakers. Greg? It's all over the board, uh, which is just really interesting to see, um, you know, because the numbers are small on the top end and the bottom end on the commemoratives and, and on the substantive and significance, um, you know, to fully characterize, I guess we haven't spent that much time trying to characterize who, who are the commemorative folks, um, but on the substantive and significant uh, bills, you know, there, there is a bias in media reporting that they're not going to report on a bill that's going to immediately die in committee. So uh, they are going to report on the ones that are moving farther through the process. And we know that bills that move farther through the process tend to be from, you know, committee chairs and and from members of the majority party. And so there there is uh, quite a bit of difference there in substantive and significant bills between the majority and the minority party. Um, but I love this idea of diving into those different stages of the lawmaking process and wanted to, to build on Alan's uh, point that there uh, on two different fronts. Uh, one is with regard to the majority and the minority party, not a huge gap. Um, certainly majority party members uh, introduce more bills than minority party members. But once we get to stage two, are they getting hearings? Are they making it through committee and so on? That's where uh, the majority party factor is coming in just so strongly. Uh, you know, five to one or 10 to one as far as the majority party uh, dominating the minority party in which bills move forward at the committee stage. Um, you know, an interesting finding we had is if you make it over that high hurdle and you're in the minority party and you get something to the floor of the House or the floor of the Senate, it's actually more likely to pass 
than bills that are sponsored by members of the majority party uh, on the floor, which, which we found really intriguing. Um, and then the second point I wanted to raise was just with regard to ideology. We had mentioned that um, there are all of these scores out there in terms of how ideologically conservative or liberal various members are. Uh, and we had thought there might be patterns there in our uh, legislative effectiveness scores. And there are quite a few, but one that I want to mention uh, is up front. Uh, people who are on the extremes of the spectrum, the really conservative members and the really liberal members, they introduce more bills, but they're not as successful with them. Uh, the moderates, when they come up with ideas, can kind of naturally build up a coalition. Um, because we track each of those stages and we give a lot of credit for each of the stages, more so for the rarer stages, we find that on average, moderates and extremists are about equal in uh, accomplishing their goals uh, or in our, in our scores uh, because the extremists are, are raising more bills uh, and the moderates are, are passing more laws uh, and that kind of balances out in our overall metric. Something you wouldn't know if you didn't crack it open to these different stages, as you're pointing out. Yeah, well, a big challenge, I'm sure, related to understanding that is whether the bill itself is has broad support or it's a narrow, uh, a narrower interest that might be more extreme or just only interesting to a narrow constituency. And, you know, of course, you can't it's hard to score every bill along those lines. You know, even the sponsors won't probably know that answer uh, very clearly. Um, but it does bring up the question of, you know, uh, and the fundamental question, of, of course, on your research is, if I'm a lawmaker, um, one way to get my ideas or my interests into law is through a bill that I sponsor, right? Um, another way is, you know, I could uh, tell the head of my committee, hey, I want this in the bill, and he could put it in his bill. Right. So you could have a very indirect way of getting your interests in the bill. You could amend a bill. There, there are lots of other ways to contribute your ideas uh, into what's eventually becomes law. The easiest one to trace is the bills to law process, which is what you've got. That's where you have the data. But I wonder, have you have you tried to investigate these other areas of, you know, because I'm sure some lawmakers would say, hey, I don't get my bills in, but I, you, you know, I, there's a lot of my ideas in that what eventually becomes law. I just haven't used that channel. Have you looked at that, th those other ways of contributing and have you tried to quantify them at all? That's yeah. a great question, Go Matthew. And that's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take the first pass and Craig will hopefully jump in. Um, that's a great question. And, um, you know, truthfully, that's an issue that we've wrestled with from day one in this project, because as you said, we have very good data on what people introduce and where it goes in the process. But that being said, there's lots of things that might get introduced that might find chunks of themselves and other legislative vehicles. And the way in which we engage in our current analysis, we can't account for the extent to which different bills are legislative vehicles for other things that were introduced at different stages, or even in more extreme cases, as you say, I mean, people pushing for broad ideas that then find their way into legislative language, even though no one ever authored them. Um, so this is something we've been wrestling with. We think about it quite earnestly, and we're currently working with a team of scholars to come up with what we hope will be what we refer to as LES 2.0, so to speak. And that would be a legislative effectiveness score that actually accounts for the extent to which the bills that someone sponsors are their own. And by that, I mean, in terms of actual text, or alternatively, they're borrowing portions or chunks of text from other legislative vehicles that other people have introduced within that Congress. And as a result, people will get 
portions of credit for having bills go further and further through different stages of the legislative process. If those bills actually have portions of their own legislative language they introduced in other vehicles. So that's one way that we'll hopefully be able to account for the extent to which people, for example, the minority party, you know, might introduce bills and they might have very little hope of getting the bill as its own standalone legislative vehicle, making its way all through the legislative process into law. But they might be fortunate enough to have some portion of that bill find its way into a different legislative vehicle that does advance further, perhaps on the part of a majority party sponsor. And hopefully our, the metric that we devise would allow us to provide those initial sponsors with some degree of credit um, towards a legislative effectiveness score in a way that we can't currently do. Um, the broader issue, however, that you allude to, that being a situation in which people you know, literally have ideas and they're articulating those ideas to individuals who then write bills, but the individuals who write bills are the people whose bills are going forward. It's not the case that the people who had the idea ever even wrote anything. Um, at the moment, we haven't devised or haven't really thought about a systematic way to codify that type of process, but it goes without saying that definitely happens. We know that's important. And you know, this is once again, another great thing about working with such a substantial and intellectually diverse team of research affiliates at these different universities. Many people are interested in precisely these types of questions and brainstorming a bit as to how we could go about really cracking open the lawmaking process especially at the committee stage, which we know lots of these types of things occur, even though it's very difficult for us as an analyst, even if we know a lot about the nuts and bolts of Congress, it's difficult for us as an analyst to get access to this data in a consistent way that would allow us to code it in such a way to facilitate measurements. Uh, you know, the, the things I'd contribute there are, uh, you know, our first set of scores really was getting the conversation going about uh, legislative effectiveness, and we were able to find a lot of things. Uh, we'll be curious when we come up with the second set of scores, you know, are they just highly correlated with what we have already? It's the same people getting work done behind the scenes, uh, or are they taking us in different directions? And, and just the same way that it was really valuable for us to dive into the different stages uh, of, our, of our first set of scores, you know, we'll be very curious, you know, on new language added to bills, how much of that can we track down to all other bills from other members or to amendments and so on? Uh, and how much of that is really black boxed? And if it is something that we've never seen before sponsored in, in other language uh, of other bills, uh, then what can we say about that? Is that mostly added in the committee process? If so, you know, we have to dedicate a lot of efforts to, to getting transparency in committee. Is it mostly back and forth between the House and Senate? Well, then we better start focusing our, our efforts there uh, and so on and just, you know, finding out where are the questions that we don't know the answers to. Uh, the other thing that I'd say just kind of on this front is we're starting a project um, on bill ideas that come from the president or from the executive branch. Uh, and, uh, you know, when they have ideas that they want advanced through Congress, are they going to the most effective lawmakers to promote their interest? Uh, and since, the, you know, there's this natural then coalition potentially with the president backing these changes, uh, are those bills more likely to move through the lawmaking process? And is it this combination of, you know, work with chairs, work with effective lawmakers and uh, use the, the force of the executive branch to kind of uh, promote these ideas that really uh, allows that separation of powers to uh, work in the lawmaking process in some interesting ways? Well, I'm curious, since you've spent so much time thinking on this subject of, of the bills and who introduces them, you know, I think there's, and I'm not familiar with the literature and, and maybe you can enlighten us, but um, you know, there's probably different theories about 
when the threshold gets high enough or, or when the interest is high enough that a bill is created, right? And what are the triggers for that? Uh, the issue is small enough that people don't bother with a bill and eventually it gets big enough that a bill is created by someone, right? And so it's, you know, in society or in a small group, it's, it's reached this threshold. And you could probably make an argument that, you know, there should be 10 times as many bills, uh, you know, that are introduced because, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that can be changed or improved in the federal government, right? Um, on the other side, you could make an argument that such a, a, a small percentage are approved or make it through the process that there's a lot of junk in there uh, and that maybe a lot of the lawmakers don't even believe in these ideas that they're putting in there. They're just, they're, they're putting it in for a constituency or for uh, optics. So what is your thought on that? Is it, would you like to see a lot more bills, a lot more substantive bills in Congress? Or do you think that there should be fewer bills uh, or is that an area that needs further research? I guess my take on it is uh, throwing a bill in the hopper is pretty low bar. Um, and uh, although there are ideas that don't make it to that stage, we're seeing you know seven to 10,000 bills in a two-year Congress in the House and about that same number in the Senate. Uh, I don't think there are ideas that uh, you know, the public cares a lot about that are that are really neglected uh, along those lines. Where we're interested is, uh, you know, the next stages there. Um, so, you know, somebody starts a, a bill idea, it doesn't get traction. Um, what do they do? Uh, in some cases, they could just abandon it. They could just, you know, put it up in the next Congress and so on. But in other cases, we kind of see this building up of support over time. Bills are introduced again in the next Congress, this time with twice as many co-sponsors. Bills that get a hearing in one Congress are more likely to you know, make it to the floor in the next Congress. Those that pass the House in one Congress more likely to, you know, so uh, you, you describe this as building more and more support. Uh, and I, I guess I wasn't seeing that so much at the, you need a lot of support to get the bill in in the first place. I think it's uh, moving forward from those seven to 10,000 uh, to the 4% that passed Congress. Uh, I think that's where at least uh, I'm interested in a lot of the action moving forward. Yeah, I, I would agree with Craig's perspective on this. I mean, <clears throat> you know, Matthew, when you're asking, do we have enough bills or not enough or whatnot, or maybe there's just things that aren't really going to go anywhere. Um, from my perspective, I'm personally agnostic about this because that speaks to broader questions of representation, I think. Um, and from my perspective, you know, similar to what Craig was saying, I mean, conditional on having a good staff putting together a bill isn't to represent the interests of stakeholders that are presenting their cases to you isn't really the most laborious part of the process in comparison to what happens afterwards. So the extent to which people would want members of Congress and the House and the Senate to be representing stakeholders in the broadest sense, you know, I, I think we'd hope that they'd be introducing legislation in response to people pressing their needs to them. But then what happens next, whether or not they're successful because of the effort they exert or alternatively the issue they're engaging with or their institutional position. Um, these are precisely the types of questions that we're interested in studying and trying to learn more about, especially for people that are particularly interested, either members of Congress themselves or alternatively their stakeholders, people who are particularly interested in trying to understand what are the keys to legislative effectiveness. Yeah, and I wonder too whether that might vary quite a bit from issue area to issue area, you know, and whether constituencies, of course, have a stronger voice uh, with the representatives than others. And so that would be an interesting 
breakdown. Right. Now that we have those issue area scores, we're engaging in what we're calling our portfolios project. Um, so how much are the is one's portfolio reflective of what we know about their district characteristics, reflective of what they have already a background or expertise on from their prior jobs, or reflective of, you know, lobbyists and those who are giving them campaign funds? Uh, we'll be able to separate a lot of those out now that we're uh, looking at those specific issues. Right. So I guess before we move on to some more general questions that I've got, maybe we can talk briefly about the steps after the bill uh, is introduced, right, in committee and then floor and then, you know, all the way through both chambers, the president. So my guess is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, once, you know, the lawmaker can control the bill's introduction, uh, each step after that, they have less and less control, uh, and they become less of a bill, less of a lawmaker than they become a, or maybe that is the definition of a lawmaker, and they become more of a project manager, they become more of a salesman, uh, and quite different skill sets, and in the same way as an inventor might be a great inventor, but they may not be a very good marketer, uh, you know, and so I think there's a lot of similarities there. Um, you know, you told you, you mentioned the committee is a key, a key point and whether you if you're in the minority, getting through the committee is the is the biggest death uh, death area for your bill. Uh, but can you talk more about the next steps and what are the key factors uh, that you've seen um, that allow lawmakers to either get their bills advanced or not? Uh, yeah, it, it really depends on a lot of things. Right. Uh, and so one of the reasons why we wanted to go through these different stages is uh, the most effective lawmakers have to come up with good ideas and have to be able to promote them and navigate them and, you know, find ways through the House, through the Senate uh, and so on. Um, and that's a rare commodity that you're good at all of those stages. And so, yes, definitely you have to rely on others. You know, one thing that we had found um, in our work on bipartisanship, for example, um, attracting a lot of bipartisan co-sponsors uh, is something that seems to help bills. Um, but those people who are really bipartisan aren't introducing any more or less bills. Uh, but the fact that they're reaching out and building those coalitions helps them immensely uh, at later stages, helps them immensely in getting those bills through committees and getting them, uh, uh, you know, success uh, on the floor of the House, on the floor of the Senate. That kind of if we were to break down these different stages in our in our data analysis and see, well, how well can we explain them by all of these factors that we've been talking about? The one that we are <laughs> least able to explain uh, is, you know, from that stage of something passing your home chamber to it going out and becoming law. In other words, uh, you know, building bicameral coalitions. Uh, I think there might be something there. Uh, we just haven't been able to track it down yet. Uh, and so uh, kind of thinking through, you know, you spend so much time and effort coming up with an idea and building the coalitions in your home chamber, and then it goes over to the other chamber, and who knows what's going to happen over there. Um, some members are really good at, you know, okay, uh, I'm the House member, and I'm going to have good relations with my senators, and let's make sure that we coordinate on what our efforts are, uh, some much less so. Uh, but I think that's an area very ripe for future research. Yeah, I would think that would have a good, a nice tie probably by state uh, or by caucus or by, you know, whether they're, whether that member is close to the leadership uh, or not, since the leadership in theory yeah. should be, um, you know, providing a lot of that kind of project management role, right, to move yeah. it through. 
So. I mean, this is, uh, you had mentioned the, the, the joys of doing quantitative work. This is one where I think the qualitative work comes in, and complements very well. Uh, you know, from my perspective, it's that combination of, well, you know, let's talk to some people and find out what's going on there. Uh, we just did an interview uh, up on our website with Don Young uh, of Alaska, and he was telling us, you know, a couple things that he does to make sure his bills don't die when they move to the Senate. Uh, one is... He tries not to be partisan at all, so he'll talk about district interests and so on, but, but you know, not making it a Republican bill such that it would die in the other chamber if that's, you know, held by Democrats and so on. Uh, and the second is just kind of tightly working with the senators. And he, he felt that he could do that uh, in Alaska since, you know, he's a senator type of a person being the only representative there, whereas uh, somebody who's uh, from a really split delegation, Pennsylvania or something, uh, you know, it's tough to coordinate uh, with your senators and, and, and get a single voice there. Great. Well, I'm going to move on to some general questions, uh, if you're ready for those. Uh, sure. Not specific to your research, but relevant to Congress. Uh, so my first one is, and I'll ask this of each one of you, um, what do you think congressional representation should mean? So Craig, why don't we start with you? All right. Um, so I see representation as being really multifaceted. Um, one thing that people have studied in the past uh, is uh, if your constituency is really liberal, do you vote in a really liberal manner? Uh, or if they're caring immensely about ethanol policy, do you support them on those sorts of issues? And without a doubt, that's representation. Uh, but the thing that I'm focused on and that the center is focused on is representation uh, means doing not just voting when an issue comes up, but shaping that agenda. Uh, and so working effectively uh, to put ideas out there on behalf of one's constituency. Um, so I would say maybe a poorer representative is somebody who doesn't work on these issues or doesn't move their bills uh, through the process. Uh, and likewise, uh, somebody who uh, moves bills through the process that has nothing to do with uh, what the American public on the whole or, uh, or with their constituents in particular uh, are most interested in. So if I can dig a little bit deeper on that, you mentioned on the one side, you talked about beliefs of, your, of the district. And then later on, you talked about the, um, the interests of the district. So are you more of a beliefs, you know, the, should the representative reflect the beliefs of their district as they stand at any given time, or that they should be, you know, thinking about the long-term interest of that district and making judgments uh, based on what they think those long-term interests should be? Um, I tend to be a big, big fan of expertise, uh, and uh, ideally then members of Congress would uh, get to know that policy area, get to know what's best for their district, uh, and behave in that manner uh, in a way that uh, constituents just don't have the time to, uh, to figure that out. Now, members of Congress don't have the time to figure it out uh, as well in a variety of issues, and so how can they best move forward is, is really the crux of, of some of these uh, questions before Congress today. So it sounds like you're a, you believe in expertise and you believe in the representative as making his own judgments on the interests of the district. I would like to hope that we would get to a position where they would be able to do that. That's right. Great. Alan, same, same question to you. Uh, I have a lot of overlap with Craig's perspectives, uh, especially this latter one, because truthfully, from my perspective, I've always thought the only distinction between what you're identifying as beliefs and interests is just a time horizon. 
a time horizon information in the sense that if people were generally well-informed about the consequences of their choices, then what they believe would actually be what we think of as their quote unquote best interests. Um, so as a result, if it's the case that members of Congress, House and Senate are just generically better informed about the consequences of their choices and how it's gonna to relate to the districts, my view on this is them taking or making choices that are consistent with their expertise by definition is making, or they're making choices that are consistent with the beliefs and interests of their district, even though it might not be apparent at that point in time. But if their constituents actually were in the same position as the representatives who are hopefully better informed than them, they'd be advocating for these same courses of action. Um, likewise, similar to Craig, I think representation is multifaceted. I think I would agree with everything that Craig said, but I'd also like to push it even one degree further to say that I'm also cognizant of the fact that I don't think it's the case that all constituents necessarily want their representatives or senators to engage in lawmaking the way we describe it. So I don't think either of us would ever suggest that members of Congress who aren't, you know, quote unquote, effective lawmakers on our metric are poor representatives of their constituencies. I think people get elected to Congress for many different reasons, including, you know, just having a presence or a seat at the table and being able to articulate their voices in such a way to ensure that their views are being heard and ultimately incorporated into legislation or at least into the discussion in some way. Um, I think that's particularly important for historically underrepresented groups. Um, what I would say, which is quite important, is I would hope that members of Congress, or the, both the House and the Senate, when they're presenting themselves to voters, they're very transparent about the things that they plan on doing when they're in Congress, such that when people are voting for them, they're aware of what their expectations are or should be. And then it's a case that upon being elected, people are true to the way in which they said they were going to be engaging in certain types of activities in Congress. And from my perspective, if they're doing that, then really regardless of their day-to-day -day activities, they're serving the representational needs of their constituencies. Great. All right. So next one is, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? Do you want to lead on that one, Alan? <laughs> uh, you know, from my perspective, I think I'd pick it up again where Craig started the discussion and that's saying that I put a pretty high premium on the value of expertise and information. So I think it'd be incredibly constructive for members of Congress, um, either in terms of their day-to-day -day activities or alternatively devoting resources towards other institutions that could facilitate the creation of expertise, such that people are as well-informed as possible about the relevant needs of their constituencies at the times in which they're formulating policies or likewise the times they vote for policies. So I think in general, um, institutional reforms that could contribute to the cultivation of expertise or information in the broadest sense are things I think would be very helpful for Congress. So if I had to, you know, uh, push a little further on percentage time allocated to what kind of activity. So obviously lawmaking is, is one that you've studied the most, but you know, congressional uh, congressmen do a lot, and, and senators do a lot of work that's constituent service related, that's oversight related, that's fundraising related. You know, can you, you know, obviously, how much? If I could ask it a different way, what percentage of their time should they spend on lawmaking versus uh, some of the other aspects I just mentioned? Craig, I'll turn that to you, my friend. <laughs> So my answer on this whole thing is a little different. Uh, some members are gonna be very interested in lawmaking. Some are very interested in oversight and so on. And so for me, the key word is balance. 
Um, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a position where uh, my job has me teaching in areas that I do research in and engaging with members of Congress or the media in areas that I do research on. And so I feel like I have that, that level of balance where uh, everything is coming together uh, on the same issues that I'm very interested in. Members of Congress should find that balance and they have to find it for themselves. So if you're really interested in lawmaking, uh, it doesn't mean spend 100% of your time on lawmaking. It means when you're doing oversight, do oversight with an eye, eye towards, well, how's that gonna help us uh, in formulating our legislation? When you're doing constituency service, what do my constituents, what are they interested in and how can I formulate a better law based on that? Uh, when you're engaged in fundraising, uh, it's not just an ask for money. It's at the same time trying to figure out, you know, what are the goals of these folks that I'm talking to? Uh, where are our laws uh, possibly improved uh, along those lines? Uh, and the really effective lawmakers do this all the time. They just see this overlap. They introduce bills that are a combination of their own expertise, their committee assignments and their district characteristics. They just find that balance. Um, and I'd be hopeful that, you know, despite the fact that members of Congress are going to be very different in what they're trying to achieve, that with those goals, they can find that balance for themselves. So sounds like your answer is for each lawmaker or each uh, representative, it would be a different percentage allocated Probably to lawmaking so. versus oversight versus something else. Probably so. All right. Uh, next question is, uh, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? So we didn't talk much about this, you know, as, as part of your work, uh, but obviously Congress is, at least it was intended to be a place where ideas weren't just introduced, they were discussed uh, and, and that discussion would lead to more information of higher value. So how, much, how should that process take place, since it doesn't seem to be really taking place today? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this first. Um, that idea of debate, deliberation, dialogue is essential to good lawmaking, uh, in my view. Um, and so to the extent that it's not existing or not existing at the level that we're interested in, um, you know, that's deeply problematic for, for the functioning of Congress. Um, why it matters is a, a bill in a winner-take-all fashion uh, might be good for one party or for one, uh, you know, one immediate goal, but it's not good for, for the long term. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of instances where somebody comes up with a great idea and it's their strongest opponent that helps refine that idea in a, into what's, what's good policy long term. I think de debate and deliberation in Congress should be mainly done in committees and subcommittees a lot more than it is uh, thus far. Um, and, uh, and so those processes that strengthen committees and subcommittees um, uh, would, would be beneficial along those lines. Um, much of that debate shouldn't be for show, shouldn't be in public. Uh, we've done some work that says that the show horses versus workhorses <clears throat> dynamic is still well alive uh, and it's taking place on uh, you know, cable news networks uh, and so on. And that's not uh, really the true dialogue and expertise and deliberation that we need uh, for lawmaking in Congress. Great, so it sounds like it should happen at the committee and subcommittee level and potentially without the cameras on. 
Uh, that's the way I would see it. But simultaneously, to get us there, uh, we need the other sources of power, like uh, <laughs> those who are interested in in the show horse uh, approach or the party leaders uh, to give up some of the power uh, that they have thus far. And so uh, skeptical on that being a, a reform idea that's that's likely to work immediately. Right. Alan? Yeah, I, I think I'd just reemphasize or emphasize a point that Craig was raising, and that being that, you know, even though we might have these classic images of members of the House debating policy or really nuanced aspects of policy on the floor of the chamber, um, <clears throat> I'm just really not sure how constructive that is if none of these members are specialists or have the necessary expertise. But one of the reasons why we have this division of labor in both the House and the Senate in terms of committees and subcommittees is to match individual members with their and their own expertise with particular policy areas or alternatively give them incentives to cultivate that expertise so they could hopefully rise to leadership positions in these committees um, all of which is to say that by construction we have these subgroups of legislators who are hopefully either experts or cultivating expertise that could help facilitate meaningful policy debate and I would you know, hope or yearn for uh, reinvigoration of policy debate at the committee and subcommittee level so that when these bills are being cultivated, people are better informed about both the need for said legislation as well as the likely consequences of it. Uh, one area that I'd point to that uh, maybe has a greater possibility of moving forward are a variety of caucuses, right? So these are opportunities for members with similar interests to get together and compare ideas. And some of those are bipartisan, which we appreciate. Uh, some are, are not. Um, but even those that are not, uh, we've, we've studied kind of these ideological factions or caucuses uh, in Congress, and, and those tend to serve a role. Uh, we find that they serve a role, particularly for members of the minority party, to keep it engaged and interested in the, in the lawmaking process. Um, but that might be an, another source where we can get some of that uh, dialogue and expertise built up. All right. So next question is, what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? Go on ahead, Alan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I mean, you know, just to keep on hitting on a common theme in our work, uh, you know, we have raised, I mean, lawmaking in the broadest sense is a labor intensive process. Members of Congress have increasingly scarce amounts of time with which to balance their competing needs of the day or the week or the month, so to speak. So from my perspective, any institutional reforms that could uh, facilitate the cultivation of expertise or the resources that, or the creation of resources that would help members of Congress learn more about what they're voting on, learn more about the needs for said legislation, likely consequences of this legislation, as well as possibly influencing the ways in which members of Congress spend their work day. And by that, I mean the amount of time they actually spend in Washington, DC, uh, possibly cultivating relations, both with members of their own party, as well as members of the other party, uh, could presumably go a long way towards cultivating an effective lawmaking environment. I mean, a common theme that we hear, I mean, we can both read about in biographies or congressional histories, but something that Craig and I have both heard firsthand from members of Congress who are still in the House, who've been in the House since the 70s and 80s, as well as those who had served previously, was the fact that we all know the day-to-day -day life of a member of Congress changed pretty significantly in the mid-1990s when members of the House in particular no longer moved their families out to Washington, D.C., and they'd head back to the district you know, essentially on Thursday evening in most cases and come back on Monday or Tuesday, depending on the member. Um, and practically speaking, when you compress the face-to-face -face work week into a relatively short period of time, 
under the best circumstances, it's just is going to limit the opportunities for face-to-face interaction with cultivation of meaningful work relationships with people that are outside your normal sphere. And many members of Congress, both current and past, speak to the ways um, in which this really led to um, the degradation of the quality of the lawmaking process, so to speak, largely just because people had really never cultivated any meaningful relationships without that. We obviously talk about the ways in which trust can't be built up over time, but independent of that, people just aren't able to really assess the scope of the comparative skills and expertise across the chambers with which people might want to try to build bridges with people who have better expertise than them on these issues. Um, So once again, we're in a situation in which in contemporary times, uh, members of the House and Senate might not really be able to uh, take advantage of some of their most valuable resources, not being other members of the chamber, because they're not put in positions that they can facilitate these meaningful relationships. So you would add more time in Washington? Um, I would be amenable to that reform or alternatively ways in which we could also cultivate relationships, perhaps outside of Washington as well. Mm-hmm. But it strikes me that, um, and I say this not basing this on large sample data analysis, this is just observation. Um, the work of a member of Congress is notably more complicated now than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, we as a society and members of Congress in particular, I don't think are suffering for lack of information because the ease, the ease with which a member of Congress can acquire information about a wide array of topics, both relevant to their own legislation now as well as potential pieces of legislation is incredible compared to 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But as the ease of information acquisition has skyrocketed, um, we've obviously become plagued by poverty of attention. Um, People are being pulled in so many different directions. There's questions as to how you prioritize such information and definitely building on some of our work. And this is emphasized by other people and follows from other large sample empirical studies. Um, We've also essentially seen a hollowing out of staff in this time. So, you know, members of Congress in the broadest sense are being spread incredibly thin. So anything we could do to help reinforce our efforts to engage in the lawmaking process, including cultivating face-to-face or virtual face-to-face relationships, part of me would be helpful. Great. Craig? Um, Yeah, so, you know, we see lots and lots of proposals to reform or improve Congress. And, you know, there are a couple broad branches of that that I tend to be skeptical on. One is uh, where, hey, that sounds good, but the people who are in power would never let that happen, right? So we want to be kind of dismissive of those. And the second is Congress used to be great. Let's get it back to the way that it was. Uh, Again, not acknowledging that a lot has changed over time. Uh, So the ones that I'm kind of moved toward at this point are information age uh, solutions. You know, the fact that um, we can reform Congress in ways uh, just by providing good information to the right people at the right time. Uh, And part of the reason why we're so excited about our effective lawmaking work uh, is, you know, to the extent that voters want to know who's an effective lawmaker um, and want to know objectively, uh, that information is, is available uh, now. To the extent that um, you know, a staffer is thinking about uh, applying for a job and who do I want to work for, uh, or a small interest group that doesn't know uh, the congressional community very well uh, is finding out, you know, who, who's taking a lead in transportation policy, who's taking a lead in health policy at this point in time. Uh, maybe I could work for them or with them, uh, again, making that information available. Um, so, um, 
know, it's not going to solve everything. And as we've seen with uh, a lot of social media, uh, too much information or biased information, uh, you know, is, is problematic. Uh, and thus, uh, we need uh, some degree of nonpartisan institutions, some degree of uh, experts and, and, and comparative uh, advantage there where, where people are trusting uh, on both sides of the aisle uh, from very liberal to very conservative uh, and where we take their considerations uh, into account. Uh, I think uh, that level of expertise and information, uh, you know, there's, there's talks about bringing back the Office of Technology Assessment uh, or strengthening CRS, um, giving more more resources to legislative council. Uh, you know, all of that are, are in the information uh, building up expertise approaches, and, and those are the ones that I'm drawn for. Great. What book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? Uh, I was going to throw out two here. Uh, one is uh, just something that uh, both Alan and I were very familiar with uh, in, in graduate school, Keith Crable's Information and Legislative Organization, um, really a book that shows how you can combine uh, some of those interests that I had, the game theoretic approaches, the empirical analysis, uh, and shows the importance of uh, information and expertise in Congress, so the types of things we were talking about uh, at that point in time. Uh, and the other one I would point to is Eric Schickler's Disjointed Pluralism, um, where he is basically tracking all of the reforms over the past hundred plus years. Uh, and uh, the, the takeaway there for me is that uh, the coalitions for reforms are changing so much uh, from one reform effort to the next uh, that, you know, even if we have a good idea, unless you have the coalition to get it done, uh, you know, that reform isn't, isn't going to take place. Uh, and those coalitions are changing all the time. Alan? Uh, I, I would second Craig's suggestions. I think those are both important and really well-written books that I value a lot. Um, in addition to that, um, I think a book that doesn't necessarily deal with Congress per se, but does deal with legislative politics, which definitely has informed my perspective of how to engage in some of the work we do right now, is Thad Couch's book on term limits and the, the dismantling of state legislative professionalism, um, in which uh, Thad, you know, essentially is trying to understand what are the consequences of uh, legislative term limits in the broadest sense which is a very important question for trying to understand many aspects of the design of legislative institutions and the efficacy of representative democracy. And in the United States, of course, if we're thinking about this at the congressional level, this obviously was a hot button issue in the 90s, but we simply don't have term limits for members of the House and Senate. But if we think about what has occurred in the state legislatures, there's quite a bit of variance in terms of those states that do or don't have term limits when they were phased in and the like. And by engaging in a theoretically motivated large sample empirical analysis, that is able to provide us with some insights and potentially some guidance or potentially some guidance about the institutional consequences of tweaking with the institutions themselves. Um, and when I think about many of the questions that Craig and I are trying to engage with at the congressional level, this is very much the way in which we're trying to approach this research, um, come up with a very well articulated and clear question regarding what are the consequences of X, and then try to turn to a rigorous uh, large sample analysis of the data to provide us with guidance on our question. And in many cases, as we found now, especially as our efforts have moved to understanding lawmaking effectiveness in state legislatures, we're actually in a position where we could think about the lessons that could be drawn from our analysis of state legislatures to provide us with guidance about what the likely consequences might be of tweaking with different forms of institutions at the congressional level. So for all those different reasons, I think that book is very useful in informing my thinking. 
Right. Well, why don't we complete, you know, conclude here with uh, just broadly speaking, and we've touched on it a bit already, but where do you want to take the research, you know, your next 10 years or so, uh, you know, where, do, where, what questions do you think are important to, to look at for your own work and for others? And, and where do you see your career kind of moving forward from here? So Craig, why don't we go back to you? Right. Uh, so I'm very enthusiastic about this uh, legislative effectiveness work uh, and uh, hoping to continue with that uh, for a decade and beyond. Um, and within that, uh, the three that I'm most excited about are continuing our Building a Better Congress project that Alan was describing with the work on identification, cultivation and accountability. Uh, the second is as we're turning to more issue area scores, kind of our portfolios project uh, and seeing you know, which members introduce in which areas and why. Uh, and then the third is our, our work turning to state legislatures, where, uh, as Alan was just talking, um, you know, we're scoring every state legislator over the past 20 years uh, and able to find those legislative bodies that, uh, through luck of their institutional design or through conscious choice, have found things that work really well. And, you know, we'd be interested in seeing whether those could spread elsewhere or spread to Congress uh, and beyond. That's great. Alan? And obviously, I'm in a very similar position to Craig. I mean, we're both drawn to this project in the broadest sense, and I expect and hope that we're both going to be working on it really for the duration of our careers in different aspects of it. Um, I think one broad goal that I also have in addition to engaging in these specific research points that Craig was, was raising is hopefully to continue to cultivate a, a cohort of scholars that are also drawn to these questions as well. Um, in the broadest sense, I think it's fair to argue that Congress is a very important lawmaking institution. I'm hoping not going out on a limb and saying that. Um, but even though many of us know quite a bit about some of the formal rules and processes, um, really where the rubber hits the road, there's still so many questions that all of us have in terms of how it functions. And likewise, what is potentially possible or perhaps less possible by people that want to advance their initiatives and goals to the legislative process. And Congress is also a very interesting body. I mean, it's a decision-making institution where you have 435 individuals. Um, no one is basically the boss where the rubber hits the road. The extent to which everyone interacts with each other is entirely based on uh, willingness and volunteerism and consensus or lack thereof at times. And given that they face these relatively unique incentives compared to almost any other work environment you could think of, uh, it raises some very interesting questions to me in terms of how the day-to-day -day process of lawmaking occurs and likewise how preferences of the mass public or alternatively interested stakeholders can be translated into policy. And I think we have some broad insights to some aspects of those questions, but many others just haven't really been studied for years. And we have a great cohort of scholars of all different ranks that are interested in these questions now. We're also blessed with just having technology and access to data sources that we just simply have never had at this point with which to try to engage with these questions. Well, it's great work and, uh, you know, really looking forward to the next steps uh, and, and digging deeper into the state side of things and also looking further at the, at the national level. So appreciate, you know, you joining me today and uh, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for highlighting our work. Thanks for having Matthew. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on your preferred podcast streaming service. You've been listening to the Sunwater Institute's Reforming Congress interview series. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.